Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This week, we're happy to welcome back Chris Nichols, who is one half of the Chris and Jordan DP review team. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Hey, thank you so much, Kirk. And Jeff, it's great to be back. I really appreciate having me back on the show. It's been years. Yeah. Yeah. What gives, <laughs> hey? <laughs> it's my very limited uh, amount of expertise I get. It only applies to very few things, but uh, I think we're talking about one of those things today, aren't we? We're, we're talking about one of those things today. We want to talk about zoom lenses first. Do you know when the first zoom lens was patented? I have no idea, but um, I do know that I actually owned, I didn't buy a brand new, but I did own the first Nikkor commercial zoom lens, which was that 43 to 86. And uh, I shot that. It was a piece of garbage. It was absolutely terrible. I hated it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, part of me is like, oh, I should have held on to it, be, you know, just for the for the historical value. But I did get rid of it pretty much as soon as I could. Now it'd be worth a fortune. All the hipsters would want that because of the, the vintage look in it. <laughs> anyway, the first zoom lens was patented in 1902, the idea for the zoom lens, but it didn't become used until the 1950s more commonly. Yeah. Um, your lens must have been from the 70s because I remember when I was getting into photography, Zoom lenses existed, but they weren't really considered to be that good. Yeah, I think actually it started in the 60s, the 43 to 86. Um, and it, I, I imagine it was a huge seller just because it was such a novel thing, right? I mean, nobody had really experienced that. But I mean, I'm getting up there in age, unfortunately. I'm, I'm old. And, uh, you know, I started photography, unlike probably a lot of listeners, maybe, or a lot of viewers that we, we have on YouTube now, with film and with manual film. And so yep. I grew up learning photography in the age of really wild, but really largely crappy zooms. You know, um, I went through a whole bunch of manual focus zooms. I had the Tamron 7, oh, sorry, so the Vivitar, the Vivitar 70 to 210 Series 1 telephoto. Um, the, the 75 to 150 series E Nikkor. I mean, I, I used a lot of these zoom lenses and it was interesting to see how they performed on film versus quite excellent primes from the seventies and eighties that I was using otherwise. It's interesting because you see so many cameras and lenses and you still manage to remember the exact specs of the lenses that you've used decades ago. Well, you know, the older stuff is easy. It's the new stuff because it's a whirlwind, right? Two two pieces yeah. of gear every week. I'm like, what? But yes, I try my best. I try my best. It's true that back in the day, there weren't so many new lenses and cameras. No, no, not like now, right? And um, it's interesting. We've seen we've seen a lot of updates to modern lenses now, which I really like, you know, especially for mirrorless, right? We kind of went through that transition of SLR lenses kind of getting adapted to mirrorless and then, you know, dedicated mirrorless zooms coming out and and now updating those mirrorless zooms for the new, uh, you know, just for the new technology that's available. But also at the same time, we've seen a lot of weird zooms come out that we can certainly talk about today. And it's it's a really interesting world because, yes, back in film days, zooms had a lot of compromises. I mean, terrible flare characteristics, not always very sharp, bad vignetting, bad distortion. And there was a real benefit optically to going with a prime lens, not to mention the fact that they were faster, right? Their apertures are brighter. And although today the apertures are brighter on prime still, the optical performance isn't really that big a difference anymore, if honestly at all in a lot of cases. Our last episode was about photographic preconceptions of if you do this, you're not a real photographer. And one of the things is people have always said, you got to shoot with primes. and and But right. this is something that's been held over from those days you're talking about when the zooms weren't that good. And it's kind of been passed down from generation to generation, from father to son. 
And it's true that it's not that good. Now, everyone who listens knows that Jeff and I are both Fujifilm camera users, and you like Fujifilms a lot. Sure. Uh, I have I have three zooms. I have the 18 to 55, which was the kit lens for a while. I have the 16 to 80, which is an optional kit lens now. And then I have what is the 50 to 140, the longer mm-hmm. one. And yep. all of these are extraordinary lens. Even the cheapest 1855 is an extraordinary lens. Yeah, we did a video recently comparing the uh, 1855 Fuji versus the Sigma 18 to 50, which is an excellent lens as well, the 2.8. You know, both made now for Fujifilm uh, X mount. And it was actually really interesting. I expected the Sigma 1850 2.8 to destroy it just because it's a newer lens. And that 1855 has been a kid lens on Fujifilm for a long time. And yet when we tested it, we were actually really impressed with how that, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, but how that old vintage lens actually performed against modern counterparts made today. So, uh, yeah, I mean, zoom lenses have honestly been great for a long time now. And I am in a very fortunate and very unique position that I get to try zoom lenses beyond just one brand, right? I get to try Canons, I get to try Sony's, Fujifilm, you know, Olympus and, and OM System and such. So yeah, it's uh, it's neat to see that everybody's actually making some really good lenses. Third party as well have been doing an excellent job. I mean, this has been, I remember they started out third party's forte when I was still at the camera store selling cameras and when I was working and, you know, shooting film, third party's forte was to make, frankly, not very good, but super affordable zooms for the masses, Right. And now we've seen them make these zooms that, in a lot of cases, compete with uh, with you know original manufacturers. Well, that's part of the thing is that it seems like if you wanted to get a zoom lens, you were either going for something with a lot of range, like you needed a one hundred to four hundred for a specific use, or maybe you know you're shooting sports, and so you have like one of those massive uh, you know f two point eight huge lenses. And for everybody else, getting a zoom was the compromise. Like you want to go travel, you're going to get this 18 to 300 and it's going to give you the reach, but it may not give you the quality. And that's just kind of what you gave up. And now it doesn't feel like there's as much of a compromise. There's just more options of how can I you – know, like, like what what range do I need? And I And actually a lot of these are also super affordable too. It feels like a new age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I – I, I can speak to, we've seen these changes now where some zoom lenses feel like, almost like you're replacing a bag of primes. You know, you could look at it that way, right? I mean, I know the idea has always been that zoom lenses are versatile and they're convenient and you only carry one lens, but we've reached a point now where some of these zoom lenses are getting uh, really bright apertures, really fast apertures, and yet are so good optically throughout their range that you almost feel like you don't have a big benefit with primes. And I'm going to go ahead here and say something salacious. You know, if it was me buying camera gear for myself because I never get to do that because I'm always testing something new anyways. Why do that? But if I was buying stuff for myself, I would heavily rely on zooms. I'd probably only have a few primes. Um, You know, personally, I don't know if I would really pick up a 50 mil anymore, even though that used to be the de facto choice, you know, as your your first prime. I think it's still a good idea, but I wouldn't do it just because I feel like a general purpose zoom with a faster aperture will cover that range really nicely. I would still pick up wide angle primes and ultra wide angle primes, especially for astrophotography, things like that, where you really do need that. I would absolutely pick up still like an 85 mil 1.4, you know, something like that 1.8 where I can get that shallow depth of field for portraits when I need it. But otherwise I would, I would heavily rely on zoom lenses nowadays by choice. 
Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, on the one hand, we mentioned this before, it's a good idea to get to know a lens, to get to know a focal length, to be really familiar with it. And that's why the 50 or the 35 or whatever is, it's good to rely on one of those. On the other hand, it is the versatility. I've sold off a couple of my lenses recently because I just don't use them enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fujifilm 16 mil, which is what the 23 millimeter equivalent, um, I don't shoot that wide that often, so I don't really need it. And it's also the idea you go someplace and you got your camera bag and I got this prime, I got that prime, I got that prime, I got that prime. And then you got to change them. And then it's like, I'm getting old. I'm tired of this. On the other (laughs) hand, the one camera that I shoot the most with is the Leica Q2 monochrome fixed lens, 28 millimeters. So that's because there's no other option with that camera. For sure. I still love shooting primes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think we have to go into... More so, not not so much that it's got a faster aperture because honestly, you don't. Sh- I don't personally shoot a lot of photos at the widest apertures by default, anyways. Like, well, the optical performance isn't always great at the widest aperture. Sure, and you don't always need that that softer, shallower depth of field, right? And because we uh, have better ISO on cameras, absolutely, we're so spoiled nowadays. So I, I don't find I do like the experience of using a bag of primes. You know, I was in Germany this last summer. And I got to shoot the Leica M6. And of course, I was just using primes on that. And it was great, right? I love the idea of thinking about what kind of compression I want and really thinking, pre-visualizing, you know, what my frame's going to be before I shoot it. And I love that. But with discipline, you can treat a zoom lens like a series of primes. Absolutely, right? You don't have to just automatically zoom them to get the framing you want. You can use your legs, right? You got you to gotta push yourself a little bit, but you can do it. But you know, there's there's a few zooms that I want to bring up that have been really interesting. Um, so the first one that comes to mind, Canon make their RF 28 to 70 f2, and I've always been of the mindset that fast zooms aren't always necessary. I've always liked f4 compact zooms because they're compact, but this is an f2 aperture all the way through, and I loved it. Even though it was heavy, I loved it. And it was one of those lenses that showed that idea of replacing a bag of primes, right? F2 versus F1.4, F1.8, you know, at most we're talking roughly stop. It's not a big deal. Still lets in plenty of light. And it was sharp at 28. It was sharp at 50. It was sharp at 70. And I just loved that experience of having the convenience, but also feeling like I had the capabilities that prime lenses would give me. Can you explain why some zoom lenses have a constant aperture and some zoom lenses have an aperture that changes as you zoom? Sure. I mean, it's it's largely cost savings and design. You know, when we have zoom lenses that allow the aperture to float and get darker as you zoom out, um, simpler formulas, you can make them smaller, you can make them lighter. Uh, I am fortunate that I do get to play with a lot of fixed aperture lenses where the aperture stays the same no matter where you are in the focal range. Um, but yeah, the the floating apertures, there are some really nice lenses that do that. I mean, one that, uh, that I was thinking about... Um, where was it? Tamron. So Tamron make a really interesting lens. And, you know, people think about these floating aperture's they have to be like your cheap kit lenses, but they don't. So Tamron make a lens, which is actually quite unique, a zoom lens that I really enjoy playing with. And that's the 35 to 150. Uh, it's an F2 to 2.8 lens. And that was really, really interesting, you know, floating aperture, but it gave you this really beautiful zoom range to use. And that 35 to 150, that's an example of where the zoom can really carry the majority of your photography. And then you couple that with a small prime, like a, you know, like a nice little 24 mil prime uh, with a wide aperture for night photography and stuff. And you're set with two lenses in a lot of cases. And that's still a really fast aperture in that zoom. Are all zoom lenses that cover a wide range necessarily big and heavy? Um, 
the trade-off, of course, is really going to be what's the aperture going to be, right? I mean, that's always going to be the trade-off. What is the aperture going to be? How much light is it going to let in? So generally speaking, you have to pick one of them. I mean, that Canon 28-70 to F2, I talked about, I loved it. But no, I mean, make no mistake, it's a bowling ball. It's very heavy. And of course, it's also very expensive, Kirk. There's just no getting around that. This is a tangent, but why are some lenses so much bigger and heavier for the same focal length or the same zoom range? Just comparing the two that I have, the 18 to 55 and the 1680 uh, Fujifilm lenses, the, the 1680 is about twice the size and weight of the 1855. I think the big part of that isn't so much aperture, but the complexity of having to extend that focal range, right? I mean, even just going from 18 to 16 makes a big difference as far as, you know, the difficulty in making that light behave, it goes to the lens and then 55 going to 80, it's the extra range. So yeah, you know, I mean, when you look at zoom lenses, they will tend to be more uh, heavy, larger. Um, that being said, you know, we're seeing a lot of changes with modern technology. I mean, what really comes to mind for me would be things like uh, the new mirrorless pro lenses. So you think about like the Canon 70 to 200 2.8 RF lens, right? The new design was very interesting, like ultra compact for 7200 2.8. And and so they the manufacturers have ways of getting around those heavier sizes. Uh this the Sony G Master 7200 2.8, that was just recently updated from the older one, and it's drastically lighter and smaller, still giving the same light gathering and basically destroying the old lens optically in every way, shape, and form. So, you know, getting around technology, I think, is a big part of it. I think one thing we got to really keep in mind, this is something we've seen with lens design for quite a few years now. It affects primes, but it largely affects zooms in a really positive way. And that's that manufacturers are allowing a lot of the optical, what we would call deficiencies like vignetting, distortion, you know, light fall off. Um, they're, they're allowing a lot of these issues that used to have to be corrected, especially in zoom lenses very well, um, to not have to be corrected anymore. Let the camera correct it digitally. Let the software in post correct it digitally. And then focus on making these lenses sharper, lighter, smaller. You know, that's really kind of uh, what we've seen happen recently, you know, last 10 years. And it just keeps getting better and better that way. So part of that then is re reducing like the number of elements that are in there that are basically bending and moving the light to to fix that. And so you take some of those things out then you, you can make them smaller and lighter. Is that right? Sure. Or or if you are still using, I mean, there's still very complex optical formulas, but you're able to to engineer for different issues that you want to solve and ignore some other issues more so. I know it's a really oversimplified mm -hmm. way of saying it, but, you know, focus on things like getting maximum sharpness, especially now that we're going into these high resolution sensors, right? 60 megapixel sensors, 100 megapixel sensors, right? We need to then formulate lenses that can resolve for that. Uh, so you go in that, it's just, you know, where do you want to put your eggs? Which basket do you want to put them in? And uh, if you if you can ignore things somewhat like vignetting and distortion and correct those afterwards, you can really make very interesting gains in other areas. Like compactness, like sharpness, like, you know, um, uh, breathing correction for video applications. And then do you have a sense of like the different manufacturing manufacturing processes? Because... I mean, you know, one thing that strikes me is like it's still glass. It's still light passing through glass. But are the lenses inside just better now because they can have better tolerances when they manufacture it? Or is it just uh, the the formula? I, I think we've seen a lot of changes, right? I mean, just overall capability to produce lenses that, that are optically better, you know, better manufacturing techniques. 
Um, I, you know, I, I think, I think we've seen a lot of this happen and I certainly have seen a lot of this happen over 30 years, you know, 25 years going from how Zooms used to be made to how they're made now. So yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, technology gets better. It's easier to make these lenses, but I think a big part of it is also that digital aspect. You know, we played with, actually it was probably my favorite lens that I played with all year. And it's a Sony lens. It's a 20 to 70 zoom lens. Now F4, you know, not terribly fast, but not, not slow either. Um, and it was very, very sharp and it was very compact. But why I mention it as, as an interesting fact is that by being 20 to 70, first off, that was super flexible, right? Having that ultra wide range in a zoom that otherwise covers a general range, that was really fun and actually very versatile. But there's, there's situations where Sony, you know, have, for example, you know, one comes to mind, they've got breathing compensation where, you know, when you zoom a lens, oh, sorry, when you focus a lens near to far, you'll often get the field of view changing a little bit. And for photography, that could be a pain if you're doing focus stacking. Certainly for videographers, it's a pain if you want to focus from near to far in your clip, but then the whole field of view kind of zooms in and zooms out. That's distracting. So anyways, what they're now doing is they're they're putting in their cameras these options where it can digitally correct that field of view change. So then having something like a 20 to 70, even though you're going to crop a bit and lose a bit of your frame to correct, because it starts at 20, it makes up for that. So it was just a really interesting example of where the zoom lens design is working, you know, in synergy with their post, you know, editing capabilities in camera. They're sort of, you know, computational or post editing capabilities that they offer. So that was just a really interesting sort of dynamic to see a lens accommodate a digital post-processing effect to give the creator the result that they want. We often say on this podcast, or at least I do, that a camera is a computer with a lens on it. And yeah. this is a good example yeah. of if you can't do it in the lens, do it in the post-processing. You just said we've got higher resolution sensors, so more flexibility for things like that. I think the Q2, the Leica Q2 has a 20 three millimeter lens that's cropped to 28. So because of the vignetting within certain editing apps, you can see the full picture and you can see that there's a whole bunch cut off. So basically they decided to make a lens for this camera, knowing the limitations and just cropping them out. And that just kind of makes sense from a, well, for fr sure. from a computing point of view, it makes sense. I mean, there's so many examples actually, and this isn't just zooms. I mean, primes as well. Like we've played with a lot of primes where the manufacturers allowed some pretty serious distortion and you, you don't see it. You know, you load it up into Lightroom or Capture One. A lot of cases it's already been corrected for, um, you know, and you don't really see it. And then if you choose to actually look at the lens uncorrected, sometimes you're shocked. You're like, oh man, this distortion's crazy. Like what the hell, what happened? But uh, once it's corrected, it's corrected very well. It has very minimal, in some cases, if any, quality loss. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. The technology that we're using the back end to sort of do some of the heavy lifting that lenses used to have to do optically. I remember reading, I don't know, a forum, Facebook or something, some pixel people who was talking about every time you do any alteration to a photo, it's altering all the pixels. And these people don't even realize that the pixels were altered anyway in lens correction, even 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was oh, some totally. lens correction okay. going on. So it's kind of, I think users, photographers are not even aware of how much is going on. As you say, if you look at the original photo uncorrected, you can be really surprised. I think people are really unaware of all of this. 
And we could be on the – we were talking before the show that AI, all these AI tools are, um, you know, exploding right now. We could be on the cusp of something that goes even further with the lens using AI and correction. I think the one limitation is companies like Apple that are tech companies, they can do wondrous stuff in their pocket computers. But camera companies don't have the same technical know-how right. or the same people working for them to do this. Wouldn't it be great if Apple were to partner with a camera manufacturer and put the two of these together in a in a air quote real camera? It'll never happen. <laughs> no, no, no. no you, know, <laughs> you know, we often talk about, and it actually reminds me, like, you know, um, a lot of people ask, well, what kind of camera do I use myself personally? And I don't, I, I don't often use a camera personally as far as photography goes, because I'm always shooting with whatever camera comes into, in, into the mail. But um, I do uh, some work for a fly shop here in Calgary called Boer Trout Fitters. Uh, just part time. I love that because I love fly fishing. It's you know my, my also my other love, and uh, I actually use Olympus and OM system cameras to do that work, uh, and largely video work, but photos as well. And actually, a, re a big reason why you reminded me here, Kirk, is you're talking about it is OM system and and what used to be Olympus cameras. They do a lot of computational technology in camera more so than some of the other manufacturers do, and and things like you know being able to stack multiple images, uh, you know, put them together to make bigger megapixel files handheld without a tripod. I know some other manufacturers starting to do that, which is good to see, uh, be able to, uh, you know, combine uh, multiple photographs with slower shutter speeds to then really create a lot of motion blur so that you can have you know, the effect of, of heavy ND filtration for, you know, river shots and waterfalls and making them really blurry without having to use 10 stop NDs and tripods. So, you know, these computational technologies exist. I, I think we're going to see more and more, I hope more and more in other manufacturers. But those benefits are a reason why I choose that platform. And it ties in with zoom lenses because when we go shoot these these episodes, obviously we're around water, we're out in the mud, we, you know, we're, we're getting rained on sometimes. We need a camera to be simple and rugged. And so when it comes to zoom lenses, one of my favorite zoom lenses is the Olympus 12 to 100 F4. And I use that. It gives you sort of a 24 to 200 millimeter full frame equivalent. I use that on that OM camera. I can cover everything from beautiful landscapes to fish shots to, you know, wildlife across the shore. And it's the versatility and the convenience of not having to carry another lens and just have that one lens, know that it's weather sealed, know that it covers everything, works great for video. Uh, and because I have the computational technology as well, it just makes the whole process work for that kind of outdoor adventure kind of filmmaking. And so that's a good example of where all this technology we're talking about can make uh, or break the gear that you need to, to do the work that you want to do. And why is Olympus doing this and other companies aren't? Are they, I know a lot of these companies are heavily involved in medical um, optical stuff. I think Olympus is, I know Fujifilm is. So maybe they have more people on staff who are working with enhancing images from CAT scans and MRIs and whatever. I, you know, I couldn't tell you. I, I honestly don't know. I, just, I think I think a lot of the manufacturers are starting to do this. And, you know, um, it comes down to processing power. We're seeing that being a really important thing in cameras now. The actual strength of the computer that can actually do the processing has a big impact on what you're actually able to, to unleash in that camera. Um, but yeah, they've been doing it for a long time and, I, and other people are kind of slow to adopt it. Uh, you know, I mean, Panasonic certainly have some really nice multi-shot modes and we're seeing that from the manufacturers as well. Like, it's happening, but I, I expected it to happen sooner. And, you know, essentially, this is what our smartphones are doing, right? I mean, they're overcoming the the limitations of small lenses and small sensors by 
using computational photography to, to cover up those issues. So yeah, I think going in the future, we're going to see a lot more of that, Kirk, and that's going to benefit zoom lenses as well as photography in general, as well as camera design and compactness, all sorts of stuff, for sure. It could also be that Olympus, because they are they have a smaller footprint in the market, they've found a way that they can you know have some sort of competitive advantage. I mean, while Nikon and Canon are all designing brand new systems and and all of this, they're you know put their resources into something that that might you know leapfrog ahead or at least stay relevant. Well, Olympus has been mirrorless for a while, whereas Canon and Nikon are just catching up on mirrorless. So that takes a lot uh-huh. of resources. Who owns Olympus now? Well, I mean, it's OM system now, right? right. That have taken yeah. over, right? The, the patents and everything. And so they're largely making um, similar cameras and lenses, right? A lot of that's being rebranded now. But, but who, who's OM systems? Basically, there's a big conglomerate company that has bought the Olympus patents, and then they've created OM system as the brand name for the new you know, or the former Olympus product. So my very first camera was an Olympus OM10 with a 50 millimeter lens. It was just wonderful. It, <laughs> it was just the kind of camera that wasn't too expensive back in the day. And it was a workhorse. I actually, you know, back in the day when I was using film cameras, I didn't like Olympus cameras. Um, I, they just didn't really work for me. I, I, I you know, OM1s were great. Everything OM2s, OM4s were nice. But I was in love with Nikors, you know, FVs, FE2s, FMs. I just thought they were the best. I had a Nikon F4 for a long time, which is, in my opinion, still one of their greatest film cameras. And the F3, uh, which everybody loves, I hate. And that's just where that's another, that's a whole other podcast. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't get into Olympus cameras. I, I didn't like them. And even digital, I wasn't a big fan of their SLRs, you know, back in the day with the old E1 and stuff. But uh, now they, I love them. You know, I love them. And I'm still a Micro Four Thirds user. I think Micro Four Thirds is still great. It's got a lot of benefits, but... Yeah. I don't like the aspect ratio. It annoys me. No, Uh. because the history of (laughs) photography is a 3-2 aspect ratio for the most part. And I know you can crop from 4-3 to 3-2, but it just doesn't feel right. You know, film has been 3-2 for so long. Well, 4-3 was really popular for medium and large format cameras. So I just pretend that I'm using a really small, large format. Wasn't it? Wasn't it more like a 5-4 or square for medium? Sure. Yeah, okay. But it, anyway. was, it, was, it was square. It wasn't that 3-2 that we know and love. Yeah. Right, but square's not 4-3. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I wish they would make a square digital camera. I've been I really asking do too. for that for years, and I know that it makes no physical sense. A square digital monochrome camera. You can't uh, even do square in camera in the Q2 monochrome. Yeah. You don't even have that aspect ratio. And that, I think, is sad because, you know, you think of square black and white photography. It's a thing, right? And yeah, I want to frame square. I don't want to crop in post. I want a digital TLR. I want it to have two sensors and I want it to have two different lenses. And then, you know, you look on the top and you've got your square EVF and it would be grossly expensive. But I think, I think it's <laughs> absolutely the best idea ever. Well, it makes more sense because lenses are round. They're not rectangular, right? They're not ovals. So it makes more sense. You get the most out of the lens. Exactly. Digital TLR. Let's push for it, okay? We could put a 28 on it, 28 on one of the lenses, not a 35. We could a 28 millimeter on one of the lenses, maybe like a 60 on the other. Golden. Done. (laughs) Okay. So I was going to say, where do we go from here with zoom lenses? But you've already explained it. The computational photography is going to allow for a lot more flexibility. And I think... Is it possible that people are less 
worried about not having really fast lenses now as we've gotten higher ISO? Absolutely, right? I mean, for me, I've always loved F4 zoom lenses. In the past, I loved them because they honestly, well, when they were cheaper, they were more compact, but they were also in a lot of cases optically better because it was just challenging to correct for that extra light. But now technology's gotten to the point where I don't think that's really an issue anymore. I don't think we have to pick or choose apertures based on image quality uh, or, or the ramifications thereof. I think you can pick a lens more based on your budget, the versatility for you, what you're willing to physically carry around for weight and size. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't really need fast zooms, especially now that high ISO performance is so good. You know, we were saying that we were spoiled 10 years ago. Right. And now we're like, oh, yeah. I want better. I want better. But the truth yeah. of the matter is we're just even more spoiled now than we were then. Right. Like you slower zooms. I like shooting portraits and stuff stop down. I, I think there's a an overuse of people always wanting shallow depth of field. You know, 1.4 portrait shots are few and far between situations. Right. And when the eyes are in focus, but the ears and the tip of the nose aren't. I think that's just horrible. Sure. Right. I like to stop down anyways. So. Absolutely. I have I have no problem whatsoever recommending and using slower zooms. I think that's a great way to go. And uh, yeah, make them small, make them compact. Those are tangible benefits that a lot of people appreciate or give them even more expansive ranges, right? You know, ranges like a 20 to 70 F4, like we talked about, where you're getting something appreciably different than what we were used to with a normal kit lens or that Tamron 35 to 150, where we're covering a focal range, which would not be typical Um of a zoom, but which can really be very versatile. I mean, that's the whole point. I think we're still looking at zoom lenses being a versatile convenience choice. I think that truth is still true, but we don't have the compromises or the the trade-offs that we used to in the past. Now we can have our versatile cake and eat some of it too. Not okay, all this is another <laughs> this is another myth we can bury. Chris Nichols, thanks very much for joining us. Um, DP Review TV. There'll be a link in the show notes to your wonderful YouTube channel. I really appreciate that. Thank you, you guys, so much for having me on the show. It was always fun. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got this week? Today, I want to talk about Photos Workbench, and this is an app by Pierre Bernard, who. We talked to – we'll put a link in the show notes. So we talked to him a couple times about his app, How to Geo. And Photos Workbench is basically a an app that works with your photos library, your photos app library. And it allows you to do things like organizing and rating and keywording and all these things that are important for various different reasons. But it bypasses the frustration of trying to do that in photos. I must admit I have not used it a lot, but I've run into enough of these frustrations that it's a very appealing application. So uh, it, it costs uh, normally $29 US. Um, it looks like right now you can get it for a slight discount. It's something where I like the idea of a focused utility that alleviates a pain point. And if you're trying to do any sort of metadata in photos, you run into a lot of pain points. So the, it's called Photos Workbench. Uh, again, link in the show notes. Kirk, what do you have? 
I kind of feel guilty that I've got yet another book by William Eggleston, um, a <laughs> photographer I really like and who I talk about a lot. But there's a new book that's coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, sometime, I think the end of March. It's called Mystery of the Ordinary, and it's a co-publication with Steidel, who is the normal publisher of his books, and something called C slash O Berlin. I don't. I didn't look up what C slash O Berlin is, but there's an exhibition of his works there and someplace else. So this is basically a catalog of the exhibition. One of the problems with Eggleston is uh, to, you wouldn't want to be the photographer where there haven't been many books of your work, and Eggleston's quite the opposite. There are so many books now, and in, in three volume sets and ten volume sets, and there's a massive amount of work. I've got a, a an entire shelf on my bookcase upstairs of photo books. I'm talking five feet of Eggleston books, right, for all of these. <laughs> and this one in about 200 pages gives a really wonderful overview of his works. And I, I saw a review on YouTube where someone was flipping the pages, looking at it, starts from his early black and white work, which is not very well known, goes through, shows a lot of his most famous photographs and gives you a great idea of Eggleston's work. It's not expensive. Um, I think it's only $45 and 45 euros. So uh, William make us the mystery of the ordinary link in the show notes if you're curious about eggleston and just want to get one book this is really the best one you can get okay that's it for this week until next time jeff until next time see you then thanks for listening to photoactive you can find show notes including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co that's photoactive.co we couldn't afford the m you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.